I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. That's kind of what we're trying to change the narrative on is to push back and say, no, there is another side to this story. There is humanity involved in farming. It's not just a bunch of people who don't care. There's a bunch of people who deeply care about all of these issues, taking care of their animals, taking care of their environment around on their farm and beyond their farm and in their community and supporting their community. And welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. This is episode 72. Um, oh, and I'm your host, Trevor Williams. You may or may not, you pretty much already know that. Anyway, our guest today is Dylan Honkoop, and his podcast is Real People, Real Food. So Dylan has this great podcast based out of Washington State, where he interviews farmers, ranchers all across the state, kind of hearing what they do and any stories that they might have. And he's really trying to start this podcast to kind of combat false narratives out there, which Dylan and I are kind of going to, we're going to debate some of like the big narratives that we hear out there, especially the false narratives, especially when it comes to animal agriculture and all the messed up stuff that these animal rights and animal welfare groups are doing to kind of skew the image and show consumers what's going on. But in reality, those animal rights groups are the ones that are abusing the animals. And so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about all the stuff that Washington produces. I know, like right off the top of, the, of my head, I think of apples in Washington. And Dylan's going to talk to us how they also grow a lot of raspberries, blueberries, veggies, onions, and stuff like that. And this is great. I mean, it's always cool to kind of learn more about agriculture podcasts out there. And this is a great one because, I mean, more and more people need to hear the stories that farmers and ranchers have. So be sure to check out Dylan's podcast, Real People, Real Food. And I have to apologize real quick. Because the audio in this one is a little rough. Dylan's is flawless. So we used a new website to record this podcast, and I used the wrong microphone. I used the microphone on my webcam instead of this nice Yeti microphone that you're hearing right now. So my audio is a little low, but Dylan sounds great. So that was all on my end. (laughs) So... My bad. The next time I use this website, I'm definitely going to make sure I'm using the Yeti, which is what, you know, this great microphone is. So anyway, all right, this is episode 72 with Dylan Honkoop from the Real People, Real Food podcast. Really hope you enjoy it, and thanks for listening. All right, we're going. All right, well, Dylan, thanks for joining us, man. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, and, and thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun, and it's great to chat with somebody who's doing something kind of similar to what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it's always fun to be on the other side of the interview, which is always really interesting. <laughs> so you are with the Real Food, Real People podcast, and 
You know, it's kind of like ours, kind of highlighting the people behind the scenes in the food science and agriculture industry. So how did you get started with it? Where was the inspira- where'd the inspiration come from? Well, to take it back even a little bit farther, I grew up on a red raspberry farm here in Western Washington. Um, and actually both sets of my grandparents were dairy farming families. So, and those are kind of the, the two big, uh, or a couple of the big farming uh, things going on here in Western Washington, particularly up in the Northwest corner where I'm at. And so I, that was my childhood, right? And I grew up around that, went to college, um, got my communications degree and ended up working in local radio out here for 12 years. And um, it was time for a change and an opportunity to become a communicator for the farming community and do advocacy work and stuff like this uh, came available. So I jumped at the chance. Um, because it kind of brought my two worlds together, right? With my farming background and and communications. Um, So we were doing various advocacy stuff, you know, telling about the good things that farmers are doing, um, calling out some of the people who were, are not telling the truth about farming and, and activist groups with an ax to grind or, you know, different things that they're trying to accomplish um, and in the, in the process are, are spreading stuff that's frankly, totally false about farming. And so we were doing some of that and, and we realized a big part of that and a big part of the reason why there's a lot of, I think, distrust for farmers in our culture is because people don't recognize the humanity that still is involved in farming. And, and I think a lot of people have been led to believe that, that farms aren't run by families and by people anymore. They're, you know, big giant corporate ventures and kind of faceless and don't really have people's best interests, community's best interest in mind. And so part of the way to push back against that false narrative was to kind of rehumanize farmers. So that was the intent. That was the idea. You know, my background being in talk radio and, you know, I hosted call-in talk shows and did news and anchored newscasts and all that stuff in my previous life, you know, just fit perfectly. Like, let's do a podcast and let's, you know, start getting these people's stories, sharing people's stories, people who are doing real farming of any size, small, large, and anywhere in between um, to find out what makes them tick and, and help people see that they have real lives and real struggles. And sometimes that has nothing to do with a farm. It's they go through the same things that everybody in the city or elsewhere goes through. Um, and people need to see that and, and realize that humanity that is still going into the food that we eat. So that was kind of the concept of the podcast. And we launched uh, in December and just been kind of finding farmers and telling their stories every week ever since. Um, and it's, you know, even as much as I felt I knew about the farming community going into it, it's been fascinating and educational for me. I've learned so much uh, about different kinds of farms other than what I had a background in. Um, and, and we're focused here on Washington State primarily so it's this is a really cool state to do it in because there's so much different uh, farming that goes on here in Washington and especially between the west side of the state and the east side of the state. Washington is divided by the Cascade Mountain Range and it's just it, all different climates and soils and, and 
different crops uh, across the state. It's so diverse and that makes it a lot of fun to, you know, uncover all of these different human stories uh, involved in that farming. That's awesome. And I think that point that you said kind of showing the humanity behind agriculture is huge because most people think, you know, when they think farming, they just think that all farms are factory farms. Like they're all just these huge farms that are just cranking out uh, meat, um, juice or, or fruit or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they don't understand that like 98% of farms in the U.S. are all family owned and operated. And so I really like that you guys are doing. You're showing the humanity behind it, that these people struggle just like regular people, just like other careers. And I mean, it kind of goes up and down. And so like I try to tell all our listeners, like you basically vote with your dollar. Like yeah. um, no matter what information's out there, like you are providing these people with their income, with their revenue. And so you need to be sure that you're kind of following the right information or else people that are doing a great job are going to suffer because of, you know, misleading marketing stuff. And kind of going off of that, you said that there was like some totally false information out there. Like what, what, what did you find that false information was? And then how did you find that kind of farmers are also trying to fight that? Well, I mean, some of the the false narratives are are global really in scope i mean the the false information that that activist groups continue to put out there about dairy for instance and that's one of the you know communities again that i grew up in and uh, one of the communities that's been very attacked here in Washington state and and I know many other places, you know, all this the stuff from the the activist communities about, you know, how cows are abused and how um, milk is actually full of pus and you know, it, it farmers cruelly remove baby calves from their mothers and Somehow, I think the overarching theme is that somehow by abusing animals or not caring about the environment, um, that's another big thing is that that uh, farms, dairy farms just pollute. Um, they're, you know, they cause climate change. They pollute the water, et cetera, et cetera. The overarching narrative is that by doing all these negative things, that's how farmers are have been getting ahead and, and making huge profits. And and a couple of different things that are false about that. One, farmers aren't breaking in huge profits. They're struggling just to get by. And then secondly, you know, harming animals is a sure way to run yourself out of business. Farm farmer dairy farmers need to take care of their animals to be able to make any money at all. Uh, if they have a hope of it. Um, and then, you know, you can drill down on a lot of those specific things that just aren't true, but they've gained a lot of traction out there again with a lot of people who just don't necessarily know. They don't know farmers anymore. Our culture has changed. I mean, 50 years ago, most people still were connected somehow to somebody who was involved in agriculture. And now it's less than 2% of our population here in this country uh, that's involved in farming, most people don't have any connection to it. They don't know anybody who's in farming. They haven't been on a farm. So they're very vulnerable to misinformation and there are groups that are trying to accomplish different things. Some of them more innocuous than others, shall we say. Some groups, and, and we have to get real about this, I think as a society, there are some groups that have some really awful things that they're trying to accomplish 
and farming and trust people's trust in food is just kind of collateral damage on the way towards their political ends. And so they don't really care. But when you have a general public that doesn't really know any different, it's hard to know how to, to counter that. And the farming community also is partly to blame because they've been so quiet. You, you know, farmers, um, Trevor, they don't like to tell their story. They don't like to be public. I mean, it's those really quiet introvert type, you know, personality types that are drawn to farming because they can be with their animals or their plants, um, and, and do their farming thing. They're socially distanced out on, hundreds if not thousands of thousands of acres in many cases they aren't the kind of people that like the limelight yet that has ended up hurting the farming community because they don't really have a face not only just because their humanity isn't recognized like we've already talked about but because they don't have any way to respond then when when people are saying things that are just you know, bald faced lies is like, who's going to respond. And then when the public doesn't hear any response, they kind of, I don't know, I think people's knee jerk. And, and I do this too with other groups and, and other bits of information, you hear something and it's like, quote unquote, the other side doesn't have any response. You kind of start thinking, well, maybe it is true. You know, they aren't pushing back. So, you know, maybe they are guilty of these awful things that they've been accused of. So that's kind of what we're trying to change the narrative on is to push back and say, no, there is another side to this story. There is humanity involved in farming. It's not just a bunch of people who don't care. There's a bunch of people who deeply care about all of these issues, taking care of their animals, taking care of their in environment around on their farm and beyond their farm and in their community and supporting their community. That's all good for them. It's something that Beyond that, they're real people and they just care deeply about doing the right thing anyway, regardless. And there's a lot of stuff that's been going on in this realm that no one's really heard about because, again, the farming community doesn't really like to toot its own horn. Yeah, no, I mean, those are all good points. And and kind of like how you said, like farmers have been doing the, social, the socially distancing thing for a while because, I mean, they were doing it before it was cool. Um but I mean, no, that's such, that's another good point about the activist groups. It seems like they kind of go after the shock and awe for the consumers because they just try to get these, they try to really make consumers feel sad for the animals or feel and feel like the farmers are torturing them, which is completely false. You and I know that and we've talked to dairy farmers that know that like any farm animal that is abused is not going to produce or grow at all. And there was some, I forget her name, but there was some dairy farmer and she was showing how easy it is to kind of doctor some footage. And basically they had a mama cow in their dairy that wouldn't get up. And the husband was just tapping it, like shoving it, trying to get it to go up and totally fine, totally harmless. And then she took that footage, put it in low lighting and played some sad, like some sad music. And she was like, this, this is how easy it is to make it look bad. And so they try to go shock and all. And then people in the ag industry are like, actually, no, here's the facts behind it. We're not abusing them. Nine times out of 10, the bad footage you see where it's like actually really, really bad, it's either in a very low developed country or they're like, which is the weirdest thing for me, it's like double agents from PETA that pay these like immigrants and, and low level workers to kind of go in there and abuse the animals so that they can show that, quote unquote, these animals are being abused. So. It's that was so that, that awful situation at that uh, at, at uh, the Fair Life connected. Uh, yeah, I remember that. So un unfair. I, what was that last year when that all went down? Mm -hmm. I, I don't remember when that went public. 
And what was so shameful, I thought about that, was the people who were out there claiming to be exposing this could have reported this a long time ago. And then, as we found out, were actually involved in encouraging the abuse because they're trying to spin a narrative. So they were actually the ones responsible for this. And then on top of that, they were you know, trying to, you know, put it on the dairy and not doing, taking the appropriate steps that should happen. I mean, because let's be honest, think awful things like that happen in the animal world, just like they happen in the human world. People do very few people, thankfully uh, do awful things. They need to be reported. They need to be punished. There are systems in place for that. And that needs to be dealt with. Yet these activists that were claiming to be exposing this problem were actually making the problem themselves and they were making it worse. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's just mind boggling. And I think that um, Fairlife's response from that was great because their owners came out, which their owners, I didn't know this, are vets, mm-hmm. like veterinarians. And they were going talking about that these systems are in place to make sure this doesn't happen. Here's how it happened. It was actually an animal activist group that got in and did the, all the abuse. Here's how we're going to prevent it. And here's the steps we're going to follow. And so their response was really, really great. And I really appreciated that. But, yeah, I think, yeah, I think I, the dairy farm wants to protect their animals from abuse. The number one thing they need to do is make sure these activists don't end up on their farm because those are the people most likely to be abusing animals. Yeah, exactly. That's I mean, they say that they're there for animal welfare, but they will abuse the animals much more than anybody ever would. So, yeah. Man, it's th- this is one of those hot button issues where everybody in agriculture knows that it's so crazy, and these activist groups are just absolutely nuts. I'm sure we could go on for this for hours. Well, hours. it's it, it's it's hard to believe though because it's so crazy, yeah. and that's where mm-hmm. if you haven't experienced it yourself or you know more closely within the farming community then it's hard to believe. It's like, no, come on. Are you serious that people are actually doing this? And, and more and more we're able to expose, no, this is reality. Yes, it's crazy. It's sad that we've come to this place as a, as a culture and a society, um, but it is really happening. Um, it's unfortunate because stuff like that requires the farming con- community to do more than just say, here are all the great things we do, which the farming community needs to do a better job of that too, I think. And I, that's what I want to help with because the farmers do so many great things. But the reality is at this point, um, that won't solve the problem in and of itself uh, because I think people get the sense of, oh, you're saying, well, you do good things, but what about all these other things you've been accused of? And it... <laughs> It requires getting a little tougher and exposing that, no, the bad guys, the people wearing that black hat are actually the these other folks over here, and they're actually harming that public good that they're uh, accusing other people of harming. They're, they're the ones responsible for it. And, you know, a lot of people get uncomfortable with that, but that's the, the place that we've gotten to. So it's kind of turning over a new leaf, I think, for the farming community to be able to take that kind of approach um, and sadly, it's getting with the crazy times that we find ourselves in now. Yeah, it, it's getting to that point where reality is stranger than fiction. And so <laughs> it, it's 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 really weird. Well, let's move on a little bit happier of a topic. So yeah. you were saying that um, you guys really kind of focus on Washington state agriculture. And yeah. I, I know Washington has a bunch of things like dairies, like apple production. What are yeah. some other things that are really popular in Washington that the average consumer wouldn't know about? 
Well, like you already mentioned, the tree fruits and and Washington is famous for its apples, right? And apples are still kind of number one here as far as, you know, the value of what's produced. A lot of other tree fruits, though, as well, the pears and peaches and cherries uh, in eastern Washington in particular. Dairy is technically number two as far as value goes. Um, Potatoes are actually a very, very big crop here in Washington state. Um, we produce, what is it? Grant County, I think, um, produces more potatoes than any other County in the United States. So a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of the French fries that you eat at McDonald's or wherever else are very, you know, very likely they have come from Washington state. Idaho is also known for its potatoes too, right? But Washington produces an awful lot of those. Wheat is actually a really big crop. There's a lot of acres of, uh, both irrigated and then a lot of dryland wheat in eastern Washington. Um, what I'm more familiar with here in western Washington are some of the quote unquote more specialty crops, um, but we produce uh, the largest share of frozen and processed red raspberries in the nation um, right here in my own county in the very northwest corner of the state. Um, so I, I would say the, the most raspberries anywhere are produced here, but there's an awful lot of raspberries that are produced for the fresh market in other parts of the country, in California, and, and a lot more and more that are coming from Mexico. But as far as raspberries that are frozen and you end up putting them in your smoothie or they go into an ingredient, you know, into jams, jellies, fillings, uh, all those different things where you might encounter raspberries at any time of the year, Um, Most of those come from out here. Blueberries are a very big thing out here now. Um, Washington State is right up there with some of the other big uh, blueberry producing states. Um, Trying to think of what else. I mean, the list goes on. Basically, we produce and grow just about it. There's a lot of veggies that are grown here, too. A lot of onions uh, in particular out in eastern Washington. And really anything that can be grown outside of those, you know, like tropical fruits and stuff that you really need that warmer, different climate for, we can produce here in in Washington and and somebody is doing it somewhere. That's awesome. So going back to the raspberry thing, like why is it a different variety that's used in Washington where they go directly to frozen varieties or directly to frozen products? Or do you know why that is? Um, yes, um, that's part of it. And part of it is because we have a very specific growing season here. It's a great place to grow raspberries, but you can't produce fresh red, red raspberries year round here. Right. And, and the varieties that we use, yes, they are different than, uh, what you usually see in the little clamshell packages in the store. Um, our raspberries are deeper red. They have more sugars, you know, they're, they're honestly a lot, more tasty, not to say anything negative about those other ones. The reason those other ones have less sugar and they have a different shape and they're firmer is just for shelf life. So they're able to be delivered fresh to the customer. You know, the red raspberries that are produced here for, for freezing are, you know, they would be total mush within a day or two. If you shift the, ship them out to a store, you know, they wouldn't be something that you would want to buy. They're great off the bush, but they, you know, they don't have that shelf life and that's why they're great for freezing um, because that locks in all of that flavor. Varieties are different though too and, and the highest producing varieties um, really thrive here in Northwest Washington. Um, our winters aren't too cold, our summers aren't too hot. You know, raspberries really don't like either uh, extreme. 
Um, they like that cool sea breeze that we get off the Pacific here. And it's just really kind of the, the perfect Goldilocks zone uh, for, for growing those kinds of red raspberries. That's awesome. That's not bad yet. Not too cold, not too hot. Here in Florida, it's always too hot and always too humid. Right. So I'm very jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they wouldn't they wouldn't make it uh, very. I mean, you could you can certainly grow berries there, but they wouldn't be you wouldn't be able to produce um, the quality of berries that we produce here or the quantity um, just wouldn't work in, in that climate. Yeah, too. no, that totally makes sense. That's awesome. So you do something with your podcast and I'm very jealous of, and you actually go to these places and you record in person. So, I mean, what's that experience? Like, I know it's, it's probably a lot better because you know, you're face to face, you can kind of gauge the situation a lot better, see how it's going. So what's that whole, what's the whole podcasting thing in person like for you? It is a lot of fun. I mean, I like to be able to travel and get out of my small community and go see other small communities. Um, seems like usually when we travel out of small communities, we go to the big city. Well, this gives me a chance to, and an excuse to go to other small towns all over my state. Um, so that's a lot of fun. It's great to get to know these people. And I'm just honored that they trust me, um, to tell their story. And then they trust me to open up. It's been cool to just kind of reach out to people I don't even know. And Hey, you see them on social media or you, you know, you know, they're a friend of a friend or something. Um, it is a little bit challenging. Okay. Hey, this is what we're doing. And, you know, people at first are like, okay, who are you? And, and why would I trust you with my story? So that is a challenge, but usually once, you know, you get talking over the phone ahead of time. And then when you show up in person, you know, you develop a rapport and it all just kind of usually goes organically, um, from there. Once they realize, Hey, this is, this isn't hard. You know, a lot of people will ask like, do, do you give me questions in advance? And, and I say, honestly, I, I really don't do that because I just want to talk about you. You know, um, I'm like, I don't have any gotcha questions for my, my guests. I want to just hear about their life, you know, and get to know them. I actually will often, um, stop myself as I'm setting up my cameras and mics and everything from asking too many questions. Cause I'm like, I want this to happen on the podcast. I want it to be a real authentic conversation where we're getting to know each other and people can kind of listen in and, and vicariously get to know them through me and being a part of that. It is a little challenging cause I'm just, you know, going by myself. And I guess that is a podcasting world though, is that you just kind of figure out ways to do things on your own. Really? I, I need a cameraman running my cameras and stuff that I, I set them up to, you know, do as best as I can and, and hit record on everything and go for it and just keep my fingers crossed and hope for the best. There you go. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be the perfect world where you can just focus on the interview and asking the questions instead of having to worry about the microphones, the cameras, right. the whole shebang. So, and you know, I've asked a couple of podcast guests this question or that have their own podcast. How do you kind of, how do you do it to where you're either trying to build the perfect interview or you're just letting the interview go naturally? Because nine times out of 10, I, I learned that we never cover all of the questions that I have on like some yeah. talking points. And, and it, th that's always a great thing. Like the guest always brings up something that I never considered that I didn't know that they would bring up that turns into a wonderful talking point. So how do you kind of do that? Like kind of preparing versus not over preparing. So what do you do? 
Well, part of it is just because I'm a fly by the seat of my pants kind of person. I don't really prep much other than knowing a little bit of background. So I have some basic stuff that I know I want to get into with a person. But a lot of that comes from my years in radio and doing news and talk shows and just, you know, it was like boot camp for this, basically being in that in that radio world where, you know, especially breaking news, something happens. You've got a producer in the in the, you know, in the newsroom, you know, lining a guest up and boom, they put them on the phone and you just start asking questions. You make it up on the fly. And that made me learn some techniques, you know, of what to ask and how to ask it to be able to get somebody to talk and get them to open up. Because the real goal is the interviewer um, is to, you know, highlight that other person's story, get them to tell the things that you want them to tell without you having to do it. Um, so as long as you, you're asking the right questions, you're leaving space um, for people to say their thing, I just roll with it and I let the conversation go where it leads. I kind of have some, you know, boxes I, I sort of want to check generally and with some specific guests. But other than that, I don't really go in with a game plan. I just let the, the conversation be organic. There you go. Yeah. I've learned that over the past couple of months. I mean, it's great to have an outline, but usually you're not going to cover everything in your outline, which is totally okay. So, and the thing I I learned from doing radio is at first it was the live interviews that scared me the most, right? Because you're going live on the air. There's no redos. There's no editing. It's got to happen. And you hope the person will open up. It is scary being live on the air and you get a guest that's kind of terse and won't really answer questions. And especially in that world, when I was talking about political stuff and breaking news things, But, you know, through that process, you learn to get comfortable with that. And actually, that's how I prefer to do interviews now. It used to be the most scary. Now it's that that's my comfort zone. So I try to treat my podcast interviews like that. I don't want to have to go back and heavily edit and reorganize or do anything like that to tell a specific story. I just let the conversation be what it was. And, you know, maybe if there's a moment where we have to stop and say, hmm, you know, uh, wait a second, what, what was I asking next? I blanked out, you know, okay, we can snip that up. But other than that, the conversations that you hear on the podcast are exactly the way they went down. There you go. I like that. Very natural way. Very, I mean, you're giving the, your audience exactly what happened and you're not doctoring it in any way. It's not like this is reality television where it's like supposedly real, but it's also scripted. This is actually real. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly. I like that. So, yeah, on your podcast, I was looking at a few of your episodes and you've covered a bunch of stuff like kind of how the food system needs some work locally grown and kind of the the differences between large and small dairies. So what have been some of the most, I don't know, like some of the most provocative questions and, and topics that you've covered and learned a great deal from from your guests? Boy, um, hmm. Racking my brain, I should I should should pull up my list of episodes just to remember. Because honestly, and maybe I get this from from being in radio too. Once I get one in the can, and and especially once I get it published and out, I like move on, and I I just have more questions for more people, and I I am terrible at even remembering ground that I've already covered. Um, But I had some really. Early on, I had a conversation with a chef, actually, um, a guy that I didn't know and got to know through the podcast. He actually grew up in my same small town. He went to, he was, you know, several years younger than me, but went to the same high school that I had gone to um, and ended up 
through kind of this crazy um, journey, personal journey that he went on um, being this sous chef in Seattle at these really, at this really high end restaurant, but started working with the local food movement and, and recognized so many opportunities there and just his clarity on where our food system needs to go and the challenges on both sides were it, it was one of still one of my favorite interviews to this day just in in providing a way forward for where we could and and should end up you know i think the farming community is not always as clear on as as clear on that you know consumer end what the consumer wants what the restaurants want what the stores want um and that end of things the consumer isn't always very aware and the restaurants and the stores and all that aren't very aware of the challenges that farmers are facing to give them what they want um and and there you know there's a lot of people who like to talk big on social media well we just need to do this and we just need to do that and oftentimes it's like well we'd love to do that too but there are all these other long lists of problems that that you don't see um in public um, standing in the way of that. So that was probably my, my, um, favorite interview, um, and got into some really, you know, difficult questions as far as, you know, how do we tackle some of these things where it's just too costly for a farm to be able to pivot? We want to keep those farms in production and them being able to pivot is key to them staying in production, but they can't afford to make that pivot or, or don't necessarily know a way forward or have people supporting them and believing in them, communicating to them a demand for what they could potentially do. So, um, yeah, and, and we've dealt with, you know, plenty of controversial issues as well. People who have been attacked and and even some of this ugly online bullying um, talked with another guest who's a small dairy farmer in Eastern Washington talking about the death threats that she got oh and, and has gotten in, in her activist or not activist, but her like advocacy work, her, you know, showing what she does on her dairy and, and kind of just opening up her whole family life to the world to see in her blog and, and on her social media. And then the blowback that she's gotten was just, unbelievable so that was also another really intense conversation i can imagine yeah any anytime we have somebody from a dairy on they kind of talk about all the issues that they go through and all yeah. the negative comments and stuff on social media it's crazy some of the stuff they have they, they put up with we we yeah. had one guest on uh, Derek josie he's a little south of you guys in oregon and he was talking about all the stuff that he all the trolls yeah. and, and comments that he deals with it's absolutely nuts I actually had him on my local radio show a, a while back. I still host a weekly show on that station that I used to work for, um, kind of more focused uh, internally on the farming community, talking about how crops are doing and what's going on in the, the fields and on the farms, et cetera. And, and I had him on to talk about some of his advocacy work and, and his presence on social media. Oh, that's awesome. That's fun. Small world. Old yeah. Derek. That's really cool. Yeah. He's a great advocate. I love Derek. Um, so with this second season, we're on season two now, and I've been trying to do a better job learning from from organic and conventional growers to kind of see why they do it. Like, why would you go organic or why would you do conventional? So have you done any interviews with that where you kind of learned yeah. why an organic grower did that or why a conventional grower do that? Like, what did you kind of learn from, the, from those interviews? 
I've done that with several and I've had several farmers on who do both as a matter of fact. And I think those people in, in often cases have the best perspective because they see both sides of that coin and they can tell you the pros and cons of each. And the truth is both have positives and negatives. Um, one of the, another one of the early conversations I had was with April Clayton, uh, who's a, a uh, apple grower, red apple orchards, and they, they grow organic apples. They had also been growing organic cherries, but they had to switch away from growing organic cherries back to conventional because, and, th and this was one of the things that you know, people are pretty uncomfortable with this, but organic doesn't mean that, that a crop isn't sprayed. It's just sprayed with organic pesticides, not synthetic pesticides. And as it turned out, you know, the, the organic pesticides were actually so much more harsh and bad for her cherry trees. So she talked about how they had to step away from that and you go back to using non-organic stuff, the conventional stuff and what, you know, synthetic products, which ended up being much more effective for the problems they were trying to control and much more gentle on the actual plants because the organic stuff had been killing their trees. So that was really interesting as far as the negatives that people aren't aware of for organic, but then also hearing more and more from people who are playing with organic and, and seeing a way forward there and, and understanding soil health in a different way and seeing some benefits to going no-till, to embracing cover crops, um, to doing diverse crop rotations and making organic or as um, geomorphologist David Montgomery of the University of Washington out here. He's written uh, several books on soil. Most recently, I believe uh, it's called Growing a Revolution is the name of his book. And I, I actually interviewed him for my radio show as well. He calls it organic-ish practices where you, where a farmer is able to, and they're not you know, maintaining a certain label that's kind of a binary, yes or no, black or white, you know, organic or not proposition, but where technically, I guess they would be called conventional, but they're growing with as few, you know, synthetic or any pesticides as possible, but using targeted specific applications at certain times to maintain the health of their farm, to maintain their ability to do things like sequester carbon and protect water quality and, and build their soil health, things like that. That is what I am seeing more and more as, as the way forward. What's tough about that is the big positive of organic is the marketing angle and that people feel good about it and they feel like a, an organic product is, is safer for their families. If you can't get that label on your crop because you're trying to, you know, do a little bit of both, basically this organic-ish approach there's no marketing benefit to that. And I think that's a, a, a blind spot in our food system. There needs to be some level of reward for people doing that. And right now there's not. So there's not as much motivation as I think there needs to be for people to go in that direction. Right. No, those are really good points. And we actually had April on at the beginning of the season, kind of talking about why they do both. And she had a lot yeah. of really good points. And the more the, I always thought that Consumers feel that they buy organic because of their health, like they want their yeah. food to be healthy when it's just as healthy as normal conventional fruits and vegetables. 
Yep. Well, farmers do it because they think it's better for the environment. So it's two totally different things. And then these yep. big marketing groups market it that organic is healthier when it's not. And so well, one of my guests pointed out that the history of organic wasn't necessarily so much about, you know, health. It was much more about, you know, reusing materials and, and environmental sustainability. I can't remember which guest that was, but that really was an eye opener to me because it has kind of morphed, like you say, to be about health for the American consumer, but that those aren't really the roots in Europe of the organic movement. So that's why it doesn't always jive that way. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's why it gets so, so controversial. I mean, people in the ag industry know that food, whether it's organic or conventional, it's going to be the same. It's going to be healthy no matter what, but consumers are thoroughly convinced that organic is always going to be healthier just because mm -hmm. it has organic, whether it's a USDA official organic label or just written in fancy letters, organic. So, yeah, it's weird. Um, big, it's question, weird. big question related to that is with imports and how healthy are mm -hmm. the foods. You know, I'm a big proponent of American grown whenever possible. Um, there's some big questions about the stuff that we do import, whether or not it actually meets those standards. You know, I've heard some horror stories within the farming community, people hearing about shipments of stuff coming in from overseas that's, you know, set to be delivered and is marked as organic. And then when the actual testing is done, testing that's not always done, by the way, but because people are suspect, they sub submit this product to much more intense testing. I heard about one load, I think, I can't remember what crop it was. I won't even say because I'm not sure. But it was supposed to be organic, got tested for residues, and they found it had unacceptable levels of synthetic pesticide residues to the point where it wouldn't even meet standards for conventional. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit dangerous because oftentimes you'll see that organic product is imported. And I have some questions, not that I want to be a conspiracy theorist, but I have some real questions about why that is. Is it because other countries don't police the organic system nearly as closely? So it's easier to cheat on that and produce organic food elsewhere or not actually organic, but call it organic and bring it here and basically whitewash it through the import and marketing system and sell something that truly isn't as if it is and reap the the marketing benefit that that brings. Yeah. And going off of that, I had no idea before I started this podcast about the dumping that happens with like Mexico, of just dumping massive amounts of produce here, like tomatoes or yeah. whatever that are usually called quote unquote organic, but they do not go through nearly the checks and balances that regular crops go here. And so yeah. consumers think, well, this organic crop should be healthy. And then they're like, oh, wait, it's not healthy. I shouldn't trust farmers. When in reality, that's from Mexico. It was done here to get access to our dollar. And there's just this whole story behind it, which is absolutely crazy that you really wouldn't know if you're just trying to buy tomatoes at the store, unless you do a yeah. ton of research. Well, and sadly, that phenomenon has been pushing farm operations to leave the United States, especially when there are big companies in some cases involved with farming, you know, and, and that's what we're seeing. There's a lot of family farms in this country still, but those companies that have, you know, that are more corporate farms, I guess, have said, yeah, it's not really nearly as financially sustainable to be doing this here. And they've moved their operations Um to Mexico or elsewhere. And, and that has really changed the dynamic, but, but Hey, look, I mean, we're, we're talking about organic and we're talking about pesticides. That's just one level of concern. Uh, another big area of concern is what are the other environmental protections for the land 
um, there where it's being grown? What's the protection for the workers? And, and, and are those workers being paid a fair wage? That's a big issue for farming here in this country right now, as well as is labor and our standards between minimum wages and just the competition for jobs and, and, and things, you know, wages are, you know, oftentimes 10, if not 20, 30 times higher than anywhere else that, that, that these kinds of crops are being grown. So as far as a competitive advantage, it takes us out of the picture and encourages these systems to be growing stuff elsewhere where they aren't going to be protecting the environment. They're going to be causing a much larger carbon footprint to, to ship all this stuff back to the American consumer. Um, but that's the way the system is evolved and what it's incentivizing right now, which I, I think is a shame. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And I don't know if you've ever heard of this place. I can't remember the name of it, but it's like on, I think, the northwestern tip of Spain. It's this huge area with all the greenhouses. Have you heard of this place before? Yes, I've seen pictures of that, too. Yeah, I was going to write this whole article because I thought it was just so fascinating. I mean, it's just miles and miles and miles of greenhouses. And something like, I want to say almost half of Europe's fruits and vegetables come from this one region. Mm. But apparently... Um, the life of a worker there is so bad. They're paid so small prostitution and, and drug trafficking is a huge thing there. Um, and I mean, you might think, oh, hey, these tomatoes are from Spain, but they're coming from that place, which has horrible work life. And so, right. I mean, which again, you wouldn't know unless you research it. So it's weird. And yeah, labor is another huge thing. Even here in the US, you th I mean, there's still continuation where we need to improve it. And I mean, yeah. it's weird. It's weird. Yeah, it, it, it has, as much as we like to focus on the problems in our own country, we need to be careful to look at the bigger picture. We need to think globally and realize how this, how what we do here in America, you know, fits in with that bigger picture. Um, and let's be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Um, if we're going after our farmers here who, yeah, can, are there some things that they can improve? Certainly. Uh, would we like wages to be higher for folks? Yeah, for sure. But if enforcing those things top down, we cause farming to further leave here, we're not doing anybody f any favors. That's not helping workers. That's not helping the environment. It's not helping climate change. Any of these things that, that are said to be the, the motivations for doing it in the first place. So that's where I, I just really urge people to look at it from a higher level view and not get too focused in on something and not think about the collateral damage that may end up causing more harm than the good that they're trying to achieve. I like it. That, that's a very good point. The small system that you might be trying to change could have a drastic impact and, and much more negatively than you would have thought. So you got to look at the yeah. whole picture. I like that. Yeah. Um, well, Dylan, this has been awesome, man. Kind of talking about your podcast and ranting and raving about issues that we see in the industry and <laughs> what we can do. I love it, man. So if people want to follow you and follow the podcast, Real People, Real Food, where can they go to listen to your, oh, where can, where can they go to listen to your interviews? I think I lost you there. I gotcha. We're here. Oh, sweet, sweet. You can chop this. They can go to uh, realfoodrealpeople.org. That's the website, and uh, that's where you can find the episodes. I'm constantly working on trying to get more content up there when I have time, but I know there's always so much more I can do. I'm sure you feel that too. There's just 
so many things rattling around in my head that I should be blogging about and stuff like that that I haven't yet, but I'm going to. So real food, real food, real people, all one word, dot org. Um, is the website. You can find the podcast on all the major, you know, podcast platforms. Um, if for some reason it's not working, I can't keep track of them all the time. I don't know if you experienced this, Trevor, but you, like your setup, when you get it set up to be on, say, Google Podcasts or something, and then they change settings or something needs to be migrated and you go back and, oh, that's not working there right now. So I'm trying to keep on top of all those and make sure they're all still functioning and people can get it basically wherever. Um, also would really appreciate a follow on our social media. Our handle is at RFRP underscore podcast, or you can just search uh, Real Food, Real People podcast on Instagram, uh, Twitter, and then on Facebook uh, as well. So those are kind of the places where we're interacting with people, sharing more info and, and stuff from behind the scenes. Um, and I'm trying to think anywhere else. I mean, Dylan at realfoodrealpeople.org is my email address. Anybody is welcome to shoot me an email if they have a question or they don't like something I said or <laughs> whatever they have an idea for somebody to interview. Uh, I'm all ears at that, at that email address. Well, perfect. Yeah, I've loved your episode so far. I can't wait to listen to some more, and we'll definitely make sure people go and check it all out. Well, Dylan, thanks so much for being on, man. Continue the good fight of educating everybody and kind of highlighting Washington agriculture and keep up the good work. And I always think there's always more room for more and more ag podcasts out there kind of educate consumers. Yeah. So good on well, you. Well, same, same to you. Love what you're doing. Thank you so much for having me on Trevor. It's been a lot of fun and uh, let me know anytime you want to chat, reach out. Deal. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll do. We'll have to touch base with you soon, Dylan.